Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, or Bible app. This morning we're continuing our studies through the book of Acts. We're going to be finishing a series of studies we've been looking at, where, we, where we've been looking at Paul's message to the Ephesian elders, which seems like an eternity in some ways, uh, which we're covering in Acts 20 verses 17 through 38. And in part 10, our main text today is going to be Acts 20, verses 33 through 38. But I want us to actually just start reading from sort of the beginning of the section all the way through to verse 32, so that we kind of get all the context in mind as we finish up Paul's message here. So Acts 20, starting in verse 17, it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church, And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, verse 28, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he's purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. And remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We spent our time last week looking at verse 32, where Paul switched gears from the sobering and heavy warnings he had just been giving the Ephesian elders in verses 28 through 31 to giving them some needed encouragement, commending them to the Lord and the word of his grace, reminding them that they and the church that they were called to lead were in the Lord's care. That though they were losing the presence and ministry of the apostle Paul, they would never lose the presence and ministry of the Lord and his word. And reminded them of some powerful truths, some promises that came as a result of the word of God's grace. A result of the grace of God towards them and his grace 
at work in them. But now as Paul closes out his message to them and his meeting with them, he's going to remind them of his ministry once again and then, and then give them some final exhortations regarding the need to care for the weak and how they were to live lives of generosity, of giving. So with that in mind, let's read verses 33 and 34. It says, Paul speaking, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. No, sorry, I skipped verse 33. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands are provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. You're like, what did Jared just do? He said 33 and 34. My bad. Paul, once again, uses his life and ministry as an example for these Ephesian elders. And he references some things that these men would have known well and could testify about personally regarding the Apostle Paul. But first, in verse 33, Paul just sort of shares about the state of his own heart. He says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. That word coveted in the Greek means to crave or long for, or to have an intense desire for some particular thing. could be something you already have or something that you don't have. Paul was not guilty of covetousness internally, nor was he guilty of it in how he ministered to people spiritually and practically as he traveled and preached the gospel and discipled people and and planted churches in all the various places where the Lord has sent him. Paul was not driven by a desire for more, a desire for wealth or material goods. He says, look, I didn't want your money and I didn't want what you had, what you were wearing. I didn't want things from you. He didn't covet. He didn't long for what others had. And this is a powerful testimony and example because covetousness is a sin that believers can easily get caught up in. And oftentimes those believers don't even recognize that it's a sin because craving more, desiring things, desiring wealth or stuff or what someone else has that you don't have has been normalized by the culture around us and has influenced the mindset of many believers. Coveting is, last, uh, is listed last in the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament, but it's definitely not least in seriousness or sinfulness. Check out what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. He said, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. And then he lists some of those things. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry, which helps us to see how serious covetousness really is. In fact, covetousness is also listed as one of the things that must not be present in the life of an elder, an overseer, a pastor, as we see in the qualifications that Paul lists 
and gives to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Guys, we cannot be fooled. We should not be fooled. Covetousness is a sin that will corrupt us. And covetousness has a close friend called discontentment. See, that longing for things, for wealth, for fame, for whatever it is, will cause us to stop appreciating what we already have. Will make us ungrateful towards the Lord and His provision and goodness that He's already given. It'll keep us from being able to rejoice at what God is doing in someone else's life. And it'll cause us to focus on what we think that God isn't doing instead of focusing on what he is doing. And while this is a needed word for everyone in the church, in context here, Paul is speaking to church leaders. And his example would have also been a warning. Covetousness in church leaders has destroyed many churches corporately as a whole, has devastated many believers individually who respected and trusted a leader who maybe manipulated them or used them or who abused their authority to take from them. And it's caused many unbelievers to blaspheme the name of Christ who, please know this, is not okay with any of it and has caused unbelievers to not want anything to do with the church or Jesus because of church leaders who allowed covetousness to have room in their hearts and gave themselves over to that sin. Paul's testimony was also a warning to these leaders, and it continues to be a warning to every church leader still today. But then Paul reminds them in verse 34 that they, know, they knew firsthand by experience because they had witnessed Paul's life and ministry for three years that his own hands had provided for his necessities and also for those who were with him. See, when Paul first came to Ephesus, he partnered with a couple named Aquila and Priscilla, if you remember from earlier, because they were tent makers just like he was. And he stayed with them and he worked. He carried out his tent-making occupation even while he was seeking to bring the gospel to the people of Ephesus. And we don't know how long he did this bivocational ministry because it seems that when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia in Acts 18 verse 5, that they had brought a financial gift from the church in Philippi. That, uh, sorry, that, yeah, that they had brought a financial gift from the church in Philippi that helped Paul to be able to more fully devote himself to preaching and to discipling and not have to fully support himself with this tent-making trade. But, but clearly, Paul did what was necessary in order to provide for himself and even provide for others. Paul's reminder in verse 34 reinforced the fact that he didn't come to Ephesus to get something from them but instead that he came to give something to them, to give them Jesus, to bring them the gospel, to labor and spend his life for them for those three years that he was with them 
in Ephesus, seeking to see them grow in all that they had been given in Christ Jesus. Which leads us to what Paul finally shares in verse 35. Look at what Paul says there, verse 35. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul had shown these elders, these church leaders, in every way by how he labored among them that they must support the weak. So so his labors, his toil, his work showed them a needed principle that they were required to support the weak. Now, that word support means to help, to come to the aid of someone and, and carries the sense of helping or assisting conceived of as taking someone by the hand to lead or assist them. And, and that word weak can refer to sickness or being feeble, but it can also just mean lacking in moral strength or courage or will or maybe some even some intellectual features. See, whether an elder is a lay leader who doesn't receive any pay or they're bivocational, they receive some financial support from the church, but they need to work elsewhere too to support themselves, or whether they get to be fully supported by the church financially, there is a labor to the work of shepherding God's flock, his church. And in that labor, there are people who need to be supported, to be assisted, that need to be taken by the hand, so to speak, so that they are lifted up and led and built up in areas that they are weak and in need of support. This is an important word for church leaders, but because of other passages in the New Testament that speak about this, it's also an important word for all of us in the body of Christ. Let me show you just two passages that speak into this. First, in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we actually looked at this just a few weeks ago. Paul said to the Thessalonian believers, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. And then in Ephesians 4.28, Paul said to the Ephesian believers, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Guys, each of us as disciples of Jesus in Jesus' church are to uphold, we are to be devoted to the weak, to those without strength, to those who are in need. And we're to have a heart of generosity with what we've earned through our labor to look out and help support others in the body who have needs. And this makes for a healthy and cared for church, cared for people. Paul's commitment to those who were in need of support, the the weak, wasn't just evident in how he provided for himself and for those who were with him, which is a pretty amazing thing right paul's the guy who's laboring he's preaching the gospel he's seeing the church in ephesus be planted he's really the one who's the founding pastor of that church and yet he's not just providing for himself through his trade he's like 
there's these other people with me, and I'm going to work so that they can be freed up to minister. I'm actually going to, I'm going to work harder so that these people can be provided for as well. And that's a, that's sort of an amazing heart to have. That's, that's like pretty unusual to even uh, kind of find that sort of perspective. But Paul's commitment wasn't just seen in how he provided for himself and those with him, laboring with his hands and and ministering to those in need in those three years in Ephesus, but it was also seen in what Paul was seeking to carry out even at that very moment as he was on his way to Jerusalem. Remember, Paul and those traveling with him were, were bringing a financial gift from the different churches throughout Greece to the church in Jerusalem to help those in need there. Let me remind you of what we're told in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter, coming on the heels of the the uproar in Ephesus against Paul at the end of his time there, his ministry time there, we read this in Acts 20, verses 1 through 3. It says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months, And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Now, Paul was not only encouraging the believers in his travels here, he was also gathering a a, a special financial offering from the different churches throughout northern and southern Greece to take to the believers in need in Jerusalem as a help to them. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth about this while he was still in Ephesus. We find this in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 7, Paul there said, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, that was when they were meeting, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay for a while, or stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. And, I just love Paul's heart. Again, he's, he's talking about supporting the weak, but understand these are people that Paul really did not even have a, a personal connection with. You know, oftentimes we'll for, feel more inclined to support those who we know, who we can see. But when it's some far off place or, you know, it's somebody that we, we feel really disconnected from, we may not feel that the same sort of burden. I think when there's crises like what's going on in Ukraine or even back when there was all the flooding in, in Baton Rouge and we as a church rallied and, you know, so much funds and supplies went to going and helping or, or the, when the fires in Santa Rosa happened, you know, 
after that, that the church rallied together. And, and it's, there's not a personal connection there, but there are times where God will burden us. But that's not necessarily the norm for us to just want to go, you know what, I want to do more. I want to be about supporting someone else in need. But I don't really know them, and I don't really fully know what their situation is. That was the church in Jerusalem for Paul. The church in Jerusalem was not Paul's home church. That was not his base of operations. Syrian Antioch was Paul's church. That was his people. But Paul knew that there was hurting believers, believers living in poverty, not because they were lazy, but because of all that was going on and the dynamic of persecution and all the different things that were happening there. And Paul just thought, you know what? We got to help them. They're, they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul starts rallying and going through these different areas. And he's like, look, you need to support them. And don't wait till I get there. I don't want this to be some weird show where you're starting to pull out all the cash and slap it down because now the Apostle Paul's here. Take the collection. Get it in order before I come. And then if you want to send people with me, do it. And we find that in verse 4 of Acts chapter 20. We see different people listed that the church sent, the different churches sent with Paul to bear the gift. Paul, through doing this, was promoting unity in the body of Christ between the Gentile and Jewish believers in different parts of the world. Through these, through this support, he's reminding them that they're all one in Christ, that is the family of God. They should take care of each other. And now as Paul and his crew are still traveling to Jerusalem with this financial gift, but have stopped in this port town of Miletus so Paul can meet with these Ephesian elders, there would have been an added practical example of generosity and care that Paul could point to that came from the generosity, the offerings of other believers and other churches to support the weak in the Jerusalem church. Paul lived out what he taught others. He didn't tell others to support the weak and then did nothing personally for the weak. No, he showed others by his own example, with his own two hands, that this was something that others, and that includes us still today, are supposed to be doing. You know, to be open-hearted sorts of people, we also need to be open-handed sorts of people. If our hands are closed to reaching out, if our hands are closed to meeting a need, or and it's not doesn't even necessarily mean financially, then, then there's not a true open-heartedness in us. Generosity is something that is supposed to be marking the church of God. Why? Because that's the kind of God we have. We have a God of generosity. We have a God who's all about giving. When we talk about grace, you know what grace is? God has given us something. Every time we talk about grace, we're, we're being reminded in a sense that our God is a God of generosity who loves to give to us. Freely giving us all things. 
we find ourselves becoming more like Jesus when we also are giving people and we're generous sorts of people. But after all that Paul said previously in verse 35, he goes on to tell these Ephesian elders in his final words to them. Notice in verse 35, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You know, if you've read through the Gospels and you've not maybe read this specific portion of Acts, you would say, I don't remember Jesus ever saying this. Even if you had a photographic memory, you memorized all four gospel accounts, and you came to this, you would go, I don't remember him ever saying that. It's because it's not in any of the gospel accounts. It's not anywhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But that shouldn't surprise us. It may surprise you, like, oh, shoot, like, what happened? Like, something got missed. Somebody screwed up. Which one was it? It must have been Mark, right? He was the young guy, fled from the Garden of Gethsemane naked when the soldiers were trying to grab him. Must be Mark, right? He's the one that blew it and bailed on Paul and Barnabas. Like, it's got to be Mark. No. There was much that Jesus did and said that never made it into any of the Gospels. Check out what John said in John chapter 21, verses 24 and 25. This is the Apostle John writing at the end of his letter. He says, this is the disciple. He's, he's talking about himself. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And then he amens himself. I love it when people amen themselves in the Bible. It's like one of my favorite things. I say it every time. There wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain all the different interactions, all the different things that Jesus said or did, if all the different people who were touched by Jesus, who heard Jesus, who witnessed Jesus throughout all the span of his life, even not his ministry years, there would not be enough books that can contain all the amazing things that Jesus said or did. We just get some highlights. That's pretty amazing to me. Now, with that in mind, this saying of Jesus that Paul quotes could have been something that Paul received by direct revelation from the Lord, as there was much that Paul did receive by special divine revelation by the Holy Spirit. In other words, he did not learn them from people. No one taught him many of these things. They were things that the Spirit of God spoke specifically to the heart of Paul about regarding doctrine and even things we, we see even some different moments in the book of Acts where there's visions given to Paul that Jesus showed up to Paul, spoke things to Paul personally. But this saying of Jesus that Paul quotes could have also just been something that was handed down through oral tradition that someone firsthand 
had heard Jesus say and then shared it with someone else and then that person shared it with someone else and on and on. But it was never included in one of the gospel accounts. Either way, whether by direct revelation or by oral tradition, the Holy Spirit made sure that we knew this saying of Jesus by having Luke record Paul's message to these Ephesian elders here. But I want us to understand that this saying of Jesus, even though it's not found in one of the four Gospels, is something that we are to live our lives by. It doesn't make it less important because it, you know what, didn't make it into Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Must be kind of pretty low on the list. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit made sure it was still contained, still written down in the canon of Scripture that, so that you and I, if you have a red-letter Bible, you can go, Jesus said it! If you don't have a red-letter Bible, get a different Bible. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. It's okay. You don't have to have a red-letter Bible. It doesn't make it more inspired. Guys, this is how to be more blessed. Do you see that? This is how to be more blessed. Now, don't misunderstand. It is a blessing to receive. I can testify of that in my own life. Being on the receiving end of someone else who has given in some way to me. It's a blessing to receive. Jesus didn't say it's only blessed to give. If you're the receiver, you're cursed. He doesn't say that. He just says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I think we all love to receive. I mean, there are people that are not very good receivers, right? You like try to do something and they like try to get out of it and they make it all awkward and weird. And you're like, dude, I'm just like, like, just take the dang thing. Like, take the gift or take whatever it is. Like, just take it. Like, stop making it weird. Be a better receiver. It's still a blessing to receive. Like, cut it out. If you're that person, cut it out. Let people bless you. But according to Jesus, it's even more blessed to give. Isn't it interesting that those who only look to receive but don't have the mindset to be a giver are often those who feel that they never get what they feel like they're lacking? People who only just want to receive. It it happens oftentimes, and I've seen this in a church setting. People who come and they're just going like, I just, I need, I need, I need. They're not looking outwardly really in any way to like, how can I, how can God use me in someone else's life? God, how would you want to make me a blessing? Lord, you know, meet me, Lord, and and have someone else bless me. And and this and that, it's always like, there's just this like, this desire for, I gotta be there, I gotta receive. That person oftentimes is always stuck in that place. There's never like, okay, cool, now I'm content. Now I can be the, the blesser. Now I can be the giver. They always sort of stay, to stay, stay in that realm of just needing to receive. 
always feeling like they're lacking. But that those who have the mindset to be a giver, to be a blessing, are often those who feel that they're the ones being blessed. That as they seek to give, they feel like they get so much more from the Lord when they do it. And and for me, that just reinforces this saying of Jesus. If, If God's ever used you in someone else's life, you can testify of the blessing in that place. And it's not a blessing where, you know what, hey, I did something and someone else, and God gave me a thousand times more back in a physical way. Oftentimes, it's that spiritual blessing of of sensing even the pleasure of the Lord in a place of obedience, of a place of faith, of you stepping out into something that you knew God was telling you to do, and then you do it. and, and, And outwardly, it doesn't mean all of a sudden like this truck pulls up, a Brinks truck pulls up, and someone gets out, and they're like, you're the winner, like, you're the blesser, like, and they just throw money bags on you, like, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. But there is a, there is a blessing even of just knowing that you're walking in the will of God, in knowing that you please the heart of God, of knowing that you bless the people of God of knowing that you're supporting the work of God. There is a blessing. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I really like what Pastor Damien Kyle from Calvary Chapel Modesto said about this saying of Jesus. He said, there is a blessing in being the giver. You know why? Because it makes us like christ and we feel like christ when we do it the greatest giver that the world has ever known guys there's so much blessing to be found in serving jesus and by serving him serving others supporting others ministering to the needs of others and in that place of giving we get to imitate Jesus the ultimate giver who gave everything for you and for me I think it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 where it said that Jesus for our sakes became poor that we might become rich in God He gave up everything He gave up all the comforts in heaven. He gave up all the worship of angels for a season of time, not forever. So that you and I, who were the poor ones, bankrupt spiritually, could be given all the riches of God in Christ Jesus because of what Jesus gave up. That's amazing. You and I get to imitate Jesus in that place of giving. And in our giving, we also get to show the grace and goodness and care of Jesus for others 
as we seek to be his hands and his feet in this world in practical ways. The, the generous, giving believer who supports and cares for the weak sees giving as a means to bless and be a blessing. Giving because God has richly, in his grace, given us what we have. Seeing that God wants to use us to bless others. Giving because our contentment is found in Christ Jesus alone. And in that place, when that's us, we become the ones who are more blessed. We're going to dive a little more deeply into the subject of of giving next week. But looking at it in the context of of giving or tithing to the Lord's work through his church and seeing how it's an act of worship. It all flows from this same place of generosity, of imitating our, our giving God. But let's see the result of Paul's message to these Ephesian elders in verses 36 through 38 as we close out this section. Verse 36 And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. I I love seeing Paul's heart for these leaders. He wasn't cold or calloused. Instead, he was caring and he was concerned for them. Notice in verse 36 that after he gets done sharing his heart with them and he gets down on his knees and he, he prays with them all. He's the one heading to Jerusalem where he's already told them he knows that chains and tribulations awaited him. But he's not focused on himself. He doesn't stop teaching and then go, Okay, guys, you need to really encourage me now. It's my time. Right? Like a mouth from Goonies. Like, this is my wish. I'm taking it back. Taking it all back. Right? Like, he he doesn't get this weird sort of like self-focused sort of thing now all of a sudden after he's done pouring into them. He just kept loving on them. He's focused on these elders. We see this in how he knelt down and prayed with them and for them. And then in verses 37 and 38, we see the response of the elders, both in their reaction to what Paul had shared, but also their deep love and care for their, their pastor, Paul, gathering, gathering around him, hugging, holding on to his neck, Intensely weeping, that weeping freely actually means that there was an intensity to their weeping. Weeping from their deep sorrow that they would never see Paul again in this life and kissing him as they wept and held on to him. This is, this is an intense scene here. It actually, as I was reading and studying, I started to tear up a little bit because I, I was just thinking about like that, that, that love Paul loved them and they loved him back. Paul administered to them and they just, they, they couldn't bear to think that they were never going to see Paul again in this life. And man, it's, it's, 
it's pretty, this is a powerful sort of scene. These things further show, show us how powerfully the Lord had used Paul in the lives of others, that the impact of what God did through Paul in those three years he spent in Ephesus, that the impact that his message had on these Ephesian elders, but it also reinforces to me and should reinforce to all of us the great importance that God has placed on us living for Jesus and his kingdom and his gospel and his glory and the great importance that God has placed on the relational aspect of our lives, that people are the ministry and that it's people that God wants us to make the greatest investments into in this life. Why? Because nothing else is going to follow into eternity except the souls of people. Nothing else. Not one thing except for people's souls. And that relational aspect has to be the thing that holds the greatest importance in your and my life because that's the only thing that truly matters. That's why Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and not to seek and to save his favorite tree. To keep his favorite restaurant from closing down. I'm not diminishing those things. But Jesus didn't die for other things. He died for people. He spent all of his time with people. Why? Because people matter the most to him and they should matter the most to us. After that time of praying and weeping and embracing, the Ephesian elders accompanied Paul to the ship that he was going to sail away on with his crew and Paul, we're going to see soon, going into chapter 21, begins to continue his trip to Jerusalem, wanting to be there on the day of Pentecost. You know, there's been a lot that we've looked at and, and been able to glean from Paul's message over the weeks, what he shared with the Ephesian elders. Things specifically for church leaders, but also things for all of us as disciples of Jesus to to learn from and take to heart and, and seek to apply to our lives. And, and I pray there were some of those things from our study today that spoke to you, that maybe convicted you, that maybe stirred you, that maybe encouraged you. I, I, I pray that's true. But I'm going to have Nikki come back as we begin to close. You know, whether it's a, a convicting and corrective word about covetousness or an exhortation about caring for others, being, being generous in, our, in order to support those in need, or, or just a reminder that Jesus is the ultimate giver who has given everything for you and for me. There are things here for each of us to take to heart today. You know, Jesus just wants us. Isn't that amazing? There's so many people that want something from us. But Jesus just wants us. Yes, he wants to use us. 
They'll use our giftings and our time and our finances and our relationships and opportunity. He'll use all of those things, but you know what he really just wants? Just us. Just you and me. And to be reminded today in all of these things, the great blessing. Yes, it's more blessed to give than to receive, but guys, you and I have received the greatest blessing of all salvation, forgiveness, redemption, justification, being sanctified and washed, sealed by the Spirit of God, given the promise of heaven with Jesus for all eternity. Guys, you and I are the ones who are the most blessed because we actually have received Jesus. Amen? You know, maybe today there's even someone among us who, you know what, that first step, just receiving Jesus is the part that is missing for you. You know, it's more blessed to give than to receive, but Jesus is like, look, the, the, the thing I want you to receive is me. We're missing out. Not just in the moment, not just the things that Jesus wants to do now, but we're gonna miss out for all eternity if we're the ones who are rejecting what Jesus has provided for us through, his, through the cross. And if that's you this morning, and you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ to open your heart up to him, to humble yourself before him, to confess that he is Lord. Would you stand where you're at if that's anyone here this morning that you would make that decision for Jesus? You know, maybe for you, it's not a first-time decision. Maybe just even talking about some of these things like covetousness or just seeing where maybe the focus has been on you and then instead of the things that are close to the heart of God. And maybe for you, you're just seeing that, you know what, there's some things that I know that God wants to change in my own life. I would love to pray for you this morning if you would stand, if that's you. Just to say, look, I'd love prayer that the Lord would do a fresh work in my life, that there'd be some change that would happen in my life. Yeah. Awesome. Anybody else? Like, God, I, I want you to do, like something, that may, it could be something that's off, or maybe you're just going like, I just, I know that there's more that God's wanting to do. Awesome. Let me pray for you both. Lord, I pray that you'd meet both of these precious saints of yours. Lord God, that you would, Lord, even now, fill them with your spirit. Lord, as they've stood in humility independency, Lord, in desperation for you. Lord, they want to be on the receiving end of the work of your grace, Lord, the work of your spirit. God, would you meet them? Lord, you know those areas, God, where maybe they're seeing that change needs to happen or growth or maybe just more of something that they know that you're already wanting to do. God, would you do those things within them? Lord, that only you can do, Lord, that they can't make happen on their own. God, would you bring transformation 
Lord, would you, God, bring refreshing. Lord, would you bring revival. Lord, would you bring renewal. And God, would you have your way in their lives, God, as they've stood just going, look, Lord, I, I just want to be on board with all that you desire for my life. Lord, I pray that you would do those things. And God, as we respond to your word this morning in songs of praise and taking of the communion elements, Lord, uh, some going and getting prayed for, Lord, just continue to move by your spirit, Lord. God, receive the glory that's due to you. Lord, you are amazing, Lord. We're thankful for all that we've been given in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we just want to give back to you now. Lord, the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. God, would it be acceptable in your sight this morning? So Father, continue to meet with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.